0: Today we're continuing our teaching series in the Book of Joshua. Thus far in in the story, as we've been following it the last few weeks, we've we've joined the nation of Israel as as they had been on a journey from being in the wilderness into the land that God promised them. We we listened in as as God called Joshua to lead his people to go defeat the enemy, those that would oppose God and His purposes, and And we overheard God tell Joshua, be strong and be courageous as he leads the nation of Israel. And we saw how Joshua then, as God was leading up front, he led the people to the banks of the Jordan River, where they were finally on the cusp after so many years, after 40 years of waiting to finally grab hold of the promises God had given to them. And we saw last week how God supernaturally, He showed His infinite wisdom and power, and He parted the Jordan River, and they were able to cross over on dry ground and enter into the land that God promised their forefathers so many years earlier. And the book of Joshua so vividly displays, it's just Screaming it for us to see. It's displaying that our God keeps His promises. That our God is trustworthy. That no matter what the opposition is, and no matter how bleak it might look, and no matter how hard it might be, that we can trust our God who goes before us. Because He's faithful. And Joshua over and over is crying out, God, is faithful and we can follow our Joshua, Jesus, into our battles every day and we can have victory because he goes before us. And so the, the theme of Joshua, which is also the theme of this teaching series, is that God faithfully leads his people to victory over the enemy and gives them rest. And so we're seeing that everything in this book is pointing straight to Jesus fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and points to his gospel of grace. And so Jesus' victory over sin and over Satan and over death is our victory that we have because we're in Christ and we're following our King. Now we're talking about rest. A lot of us come here on a Friday morning and maybe you're tired. Maybe you're worn out. Maybe you think, man, this has been a really tough, very challenging week. And and the notion of rest just sounds really great to me. Now, we will have rest ultimately for our souls one day when our king comes back. And if we have died before, we'll be resurrected. And if not, then we'll see him coming down from heaven. We'll meet him in the air. And we will then receive perfect and glorified bodies. We will be with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will see Him as He is face to face, clothed in glory that He has given to us, much like a mirror that is pointing to the sun that is brilliant. And that will be us as we will shine brightly because of Christ shining on us. And we will enjoy Him and each other for eternity in heaven. And your soul will finally be home. And I know living in Abu Dhabi, sometimes you wonder where is home? And I've confused my children because they don't even know what home is. And when we bring home the the two others in the next month or or two from Ethiopia, they're not going to know what home is at all. Ethiopians raised by Americans in Abu Dhabi, they're going to be so messed up. What's home for these two little ones? Well, they're going to learn, as we know, that home ultimately is one day When we're with Christ, we'll be home. Your soul will have rest. But until that day comes, until you have rest from the enemy and rest from the struggles and rest from your temptations and from sin, until we finally enter our promised land and have rest with our King who's leading us into victory. Until that day comes, we walk by faith and we trust Jesus and we follow Him into our battles and find victory as we await that day where we cross the Jordan River and be with Christ. Let's pick up the story as we pick, last week left off in, end of chapter 4, so we're in chapter 5 now, looking at verses 1 through 12. So let, let's pick up where we left off, Joshua 5, 1 through 12. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel, so they had crossed over. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who had come out of Egypt, perished. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places and in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening of the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, the unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now, this section in the book of Joshua can be very easily forgotten. You can just jump over these 12 verses because there's so much that's happening from crossing the Jordan River, later walls crumbling, the sun stopping. There's just so much that's just remarkable in this book. And then you can just skip over these 12 verses. But these are very important, and we can't miss them or skip over them. They're very simple events. These aren't even supernatural. In the life of an Israelite, things like circumcision and Passover were very routine. It was just part of their normal devotional life. Not very exciting compared to other parts of Joshua. You might think, well, why do they have to stop to do that? They had things to do, people to conquer, lands to go acquire, promises to get laid hold of. So why did they stop and do this stuff? They were so busy doing things for God. You might think to yourself that this was just a a speed bump along the way. But what you're seeing here is God calls them to stop. He tells them, stop the activity and reflect on him. So let me give you the main idea, the primary truth in this passage that's going to govern everything that we say this morning. The truth here is that spiritual preparation is is necessary for victory. And so spiritual preparation is absolutely necessary before you can be victorious. Before they could go and actually conquer the land, before they can go and be victorious, they needed to be prepared spiritually. And so we'll see today how this truth applies to you and me today. But first, let's look at this more closely and see what happened when they stopped and what God did. Verse 1. It's clear that God is preparing their way to experience victory. It says in verse 1, All the kings of the Amorites, all the kings of the Canaanites, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. So they heard the news. They're reading it on their Twitter feed. They're seeing, oh, this is happening. That they cross over the Jordan on dry land. And now there's two names here, Amorites and Canaanites. They're basically synonymous. It's describing the inhabitants of that land. People who lived there before the Israelites were there to go take it over. And it says that there were all, it says specifically all, everyone in the land, it says, was terrified. The words were, their hearts melted. And so their hearts were much like a Snickers bar, when you walk out of the giant and you go to the car park in the summer in Abu Dhabi, and by the time you get to your car, your Snickers is a melted mess. And I like Snickers, and so it's sad whenever I go buy one in the summer because you can't eat it till you go home, put it in the fridge, and eat it later. It's a mess. This is their hearts. It was a mess. Their hearts were melted, dissolved. They were undoing themselves. They were so terrified of the God of Israel and Israelites that were coming. The enemy was shuddering. They knew God's power, and that the enemy is no match for God. See, God was already preparing the way by getting everyone's hearts fearful of the one true God. And then verses two through seven. Are very important. God commands Joshua, go and circumcise all the males. Now, my wife asked me, does everyone know what circumcision is? And I said, if someone in the room doesn't know what it is, then they can ask someone else, and they'll tell them. Because it can be a little bit graphic. So, I won't be graphic this morning, but hopefully most of us know what circumcision is. And so what you have here is is God tells Joshua to go and circumcise all the males in the camp. And it explains why. It says, though all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, so everyone that was in Egypt was circumcised. It says, yet, the people who were born on the way in the wilderness in those 40 years, it says, had not been circumcised. And so circumcision was not being practiced when they were out in the wilderness for those 40 years. You have a whole generation that was not circumcised. And then it says that the previous generation that died, did so because of their disobedience. And so because of that, they did not have the privileges in the promised land, but this new generation now is being prepared to take hold of those promises. And the land is described metaphorically as a good land. It says flowing with milk and honey. And some people say, oh, well, that means that there were a lot of goats where you could milk and there was a lot of bees you could keep to make honey. And even though those are true, it's more than goats' milk and collecting honey. This is metaphorical language describing that the land was good and would produce a lot of fruit, and it was a bountiful harvest. And so this land is being described as good and productive for God's people. He's going to provide for them through this land that flows with milk and honey. Now this issue of circumcision that comes up has its context because in Genesis 17 when God called Abraham to be the father of the people of God, he told them to circumcise male boys on the eighth day, and that this would be a sign of the covenant relationship between God and his people. And so circumcision was a physical mark that represented that they belonged to God of the spiritual reality. So in verse 8, after it's, they're all circumcised, it says, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, I'm sure that was not a pleasant day. They remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. If you go to the previous chapters, it's on the 10th day of the month. This is the 14th day of the month. And so they were there the first night, so basically three days. And so they were all circumcised, and three days later, they were all beginning to heal. Now, from a military perspective, now, I've not been in the army. I know a lot of you are. It seems like a lot of our military brothers. Um, I'm not a military mind, but I will say this. Going to your army and injuring all the men is probably not the best way to go into battle. To stop when you have already entered into the enemy territory. Think about it. They've crossed the Jordan. They're on the plains of Jericho. Jericho is basically in sight. They're right there. The enemy can basically see this huge nation encamped around them. And what did they do? They stop and they incapacitate their whole army. It's crazy. From a human perspective, who would do that? It makes no sense. And yet, They did because God told them to, and they were trusting in their God, and they were all laying around for three days in pain, healing, when any attack would have been the end of Israel because they would not be able to fight back. And yet, no one attacked them. No one dared attack the people of God because God went before them, and he had struck so much fear in the heart of the enemy that no one ever even had the notion of taking the attack to Israel. No way. Too afraid. Their hearts had melted. Which is why verse one sets the stage for why no attack ever came. And God again is saying that his purposes are perfect and his thoughts are not my thoughts. I was talking to Sister this morning, precious sister you who Went this summer on mission. We supported her. She's a wonderful sister. And she's graduating from NOU Abu Dhabi in May. I'm like, so what are your plans? And she was like, God has his plans. I'm just trusting him. And I was so inspired by, by my young sister this morning. I don't even know what God has in store for me after I graduate. But God has plans for me. And he's going to use me for his glory. And I'm going to trust him, even if I don't have it all figured out. And that's how we live by faith. And that's what you see with the Israelites, living by faith and trusting, doing things that doesn't even seem to make sense, but they're trusting their God. And then in verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Now, the the word Hebrew for roll was Gilal, and then Gilgal is the name of that place. So they sounds similar and so it says that he rolled away their reproach. The reproach means shame. And so he's rolled away their shame. Now, we don't know exactly. I'll be honest. I don't know what God's talking about there. There's two possibilities. I've been studying this all week, and there's one of two possible things that has shamed them. One possibility is the shame of having been in slavery. And so they were enslaved, and that was a shameful thing. And so now you have the complete deliverance from slavery. They're no longer wandering. They're in the land. And so this circumcision figuratively is saying, your shame of having been slaves is now gone. You are redeemed. But the other possibility is that it was a shame of having doubted God in the wilderness. And so possibly this shame is that they disobeyed God and not had to spend 40 years wandering, waiting, and seeing everyone die from that generation. It's pretty shameful. So I'm not sure which one or both, but here the point is clear. That this circumcision is showing symbolically, spiritually, that God has rolled away their shame from Egypt. And now they're ready spiritually to go forth in victory. And then verse 10 says where they celebrated Passover. And so this is after they had all healed. Now Passover, if you remember from Exodus, when they were in slavery, whenever they left, the Exodus culminated with them leaving with the Passover, the night that they left. And so this is a memorial where God instructed his people to kill A spotless lamb with no blemish. And that this lamb would represent an entire household. And then when God's messenger of death would come into Egypt and he would go to a home and he would see blood that was smeared on the doorpost, he would pass over that home and he would not execute judgment and kill the firstborn of that because the firstborn represented the whole family. And so then the lamb represented the firstborn who was a sacrifice, who died in the place of that firstborn of the Israelite family. This is judgment. The Egyptians had disobeyed and were evil and had broken God's laws and would not repent. And their unwillingness to bend the knee and to repent God judged them very severely. They were warned, and they could have turned to God, but they refused. So then God enacted his holy and right judgment upon the Egyptians. But the Israelites, if we're honest, and we went through this a year ago, they were just as guilty as the Egyptians. Just as guilty. Maybe the Israelites were in physical slavery, and of course they were, but they had a much deeper problem than, just, than physical slavery. They were spiritually lost, and they were spiritually enslaved. They had essentially volunteered, said, sign me up. They had volunteered for spiritual slavery by worshiping the same idols, worshiping the same gods of Egypt. And so when the messenger of death would come and he would see a home that was full of evil and pagan idols, he would go forth and he would kill that firstborn. He would go to the next home and he would see the same Egyptian pagan evil idols, but he would also see blood that was on the doorpost. And he did not kill that firstborn. This is absolute mercy. This is God showing grace. Yes, God is absolutely holy, and his holiness moves him to have righteous judgments, righteous anger towards sin. You see, in the ancient world, the thought of redemption referred to paying the price to liberate someone or something, land or property or a person, from slavery. So the redemption price had to be paid to free someone or something from being enslaved. Sometimes the word ransom is also used in the same sense. So in order for them to be released from their spiritual slavery, a price had to be paid. Because there's always a price for sin. Because it's against a holy God. Which is why the lamb served as a substitute and died in the place of God's people. And so the Passover, again, is showing God's overwhelming grace. This is showing how God could not enter into a relationship until the price had been paid because God does not have the covenant at Mount Sinai with the people until after they had already experienced his redemption with the lamb that had paid. And then what you see in the last two verses here, verses 11 and 12, is that the manna stopped raining. And so they observe Passover they were circumcised, they ate fruit of the land for the first time, and the bread from heaven stopped, because now God was providing through the land. Now, there's a lot of details in here, and we can miss the forest by the trees, so to speak. And so let's, let's take a step back and once again see what this is talking about. They stopped to be prepared spiritually with circumcision and Passover. And so spiritual preparation is necessary for victory. And all of us understand this. Students, NYU students, if you don't study for a test, are you going to pass? No. Those of you in business, if you don't prepare for that presentation, are you going to get the client? No. You're not. If, If you don't prepare your soul for marriage, those of you who are single... you don't prepare your soul to forgive you're not gonna make it long-term when you get married I'm telling you right now you have to prepare yourself so that you will be successful later if you're gonna run a marathon and you don't prepare your body you're going to kill yourself running 26 miles you have to prepare if you don't prepare you won't be victorious. And it's the same thing spiritually. If you don't prepare spiritually, you will not have victory over your temptations, your sin, or the enemy himself. You won't, you won't have victory if you don't prepare spiritually. So everything in Joshua 5 is showing us that God's people needed to stop. They just did something amazing, built these memorials, and now they're going to go take Jericho. But God says, wait, 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 wait. Before you go do anything for me, before you go and attack the enemy, stop and focus on me. Don't do anything for me. So you've stopped to enjoy me. God says, I don't want your service until I have your heart. When you're enjoying me, then you'll be ready to go and be victorious. See, being always comes before doing. Who you be is more important than what you do. So, who you are comes first. Your heart before Christ is first. And when it's been gripped by the glory of Jesus and you are engaged and focused on Christ, then he will fuel what you do for him. And so what you do for Jesus always comes from you're enjoying him. Because a call to glorify God is a call to enjoy him. That's what it is. And so what does this look like in just everyday life? Going to work, watching your kids, just taking care of life. how does, how does this just work? practically speaking? Well I'll say this, it's a battle We're talking about having battles here in victory. it's a battle for the mind. So when you are focused on Jesus, His Holy Spirit that is in you will begin to change your desires because that's what this is. It's a battle for your heart and your mind. And so the more you are focused on Jesus, then his spirit is going to be active and he's going to begin to change you and help you to have victory in daily life. He'll change what you want and you will want victory more than that sin. So let me give you three truths in our time remaining. It's not a second sermon. This is just the hands-on part so that you can get this in your minds and how this works in every day. These are three truths to focus on. And they're right from the text. It's it's not my imagination. I want everything that happens here to come from the Bible, God's word. So here's what we're going to do. talk about stop and focus daily on truth. Stop the activity every day for a season, for a few minutes. Stop the activity and focus on truth. What's the first one? There's three. Stop and focus daily on the truth. That's number one, that you belong to God. This is the first one. Stop and focus daily on the truth that you belong to God. Focus on Remember this every day. You belong to God. That's what circumcision was pointing to. Circumcision was a physical sign that someone belonged to the people of God. It was the outward sign of something inward and spiritual, that you were part of the community of faith. And so God was saying with get circumcised, is remember it's literally I'm branding you. This is what this is talking about. It's saying, here's a mark. I'm marking your body to remind you that you belong to me. Bought with a price. Purchased. You don't belong to yourself. You don't have the right to live for your glory. You don't have the right to live how you want. You don't have the right. You don't belong to yourself. You didn't make yourself. Jesus died for you. He bought you. You belong to Christ. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now, circumcision is just a ritual that happened with ancient Israel. It didn't save. No religious ritual can save anyone. Not then and not today. Religious activities and rituals don't save. The blood of the Lamb who was slain. That's what saves. Someone's faith in Jesus and everything in circumcision is pointing to Christ. And why do I say that? Because salvation has always been about having a transformed heart. We read earlier today, a brother Earl read from Deuteronomy chapter 30. In verse 6, there's this prophecy, this promise that one day, he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Not your body. The promise is that one day, in the future, this is going to happen. God will circumcise your heart. So that what? So that you'll be religious? No. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. And that's the theme of Deuteronomy is choose life. And God gives it. He gives life. Spiritual. And eternal. So what you see here is circumcision, even in the Old Testament, because Moses said that before Joshua. In Deuteronomy 30, there's this prophecy that one day, the Spirit's going to come, and He's going to circumcise hearts. And this is fulfilled with Messiah. With Jesus coming, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ of God, He has fulfilled this promise of having Hearts that are transformed, hearts that are circumcised, not just body, not just external, but deep inside. And so this promise of circumcised hearts is pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit of God. When he comes, when Jesus and his gospel is proclaimed, and people will hear the good news that you are a sinner and Jesus died for you. And loves you. And when you repent with all of your heart, believe that the Spirit comes inside of you and He changes your heart. This is called regeneration. This is, this is being resurrected spiritually. And you see that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Apostle Paul says that believers have experienced, he says, circumcision made without Hands, So a spiritual circumcision. He says how? By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he says circumcision points to something spiritual that Christ does. What does he do through his spirit? He says that he cuts off not part of your flesh. He cuts off your body of flesh. He cuts off your sinful nature. So it's far more than cutting off a piece of a man's body. This is cutting off every man and woman's sinful nature. Jesus cuts it off through his spirit. And now you're new and you're resurrected on the inside. And you are alive with a new heart that's circumcised with new desires, with a hatred for sin and a love for Jesus. Because that's, that's the bottom line, is every one of us sins. Those who know Jesus and those who don't. We both sin, but the difference... Is those of us who know Jesus, who have the Spirit. We hate our sin. We don't want it anymore. And we battle it. And we beg the Spirit to help us. Someone who is lost and doesn't know Jesus, they sin, but they don't hate it. They're enjoying it. And they're fine with it. Because they don't know that God is holy and we're called to be holy. They don't have the Spirit who is holy, who makes us like himself, holy. And so what you're seeing here is Old Testament circumcision is pointing to New Testament regeneration, which is best pictured through baptism, which is why, as a church, we don't baptize babies. We don't baptize infants. We don't, because what we're seeing here is the Spirit of God is doing something new now, and He's giving people new spiritual life. And yes, babies in the Old Testament We're circumcised, and circumcision, Old Testament, does correspond to New Testament baptism. And so a lot of people, including in this room, I respect you, and I understand that this is a controversial, sticky, and and, and difficult topic. I'm the first to admit that, that this is not an easy one, a church like ours, that is so diverse. And so some would say, well, because babies were circumcised, then we should not baptize babies today. And I understand that logic. I, I do. But see, here's the difference. In the Old Testament, you had ethnic Israel. But within that, you had individuals that truly had faith in God. And so, so it was mixed where you had people that truly were heart circumcised and some that were not. But in the New Testament, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, everyone in the people of God has the Spirit. It's not mixed anymore. If you're you're part of God's people today, then you have the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, if we believe if you baptize a baby, it's confusing. Because we're saying this baby is part of God's people, but the baby doesn't have the spirit yet. And so the reason we baptize adults is we can say this adult has confessed faith in Jesus, has a Holy Spirit, belongs to God's people. And so now they're going to be baptized and show that spiritual resurrection that baptism by immersion pictures so beautifully. We have the Spirit, if you're a believer. And so you can live a life of holiness. Now, can you have holy perfection? No. But can you live with a holy direction in your life? Yes. Yes, you can. The Spirit can empower you and help you. God says, be holy for I am holy. And so when you're tempted to sin, when you have that temptation, when the enemy attacks you and he attacks all of us, stop and reflect on this truth. I belong to God. And my baptism simply is a picture of that. You're not saved by baptism. You're saved because Jesus died for you and you believe in him. And now you have the power to have victory over that temptation. He offers us himself. Remember, I don't want to disgrace my God. He loves me. Jesus is with me. I have the spirit in me. I don't want to give in to that. But you know what our problem is? And this is all of us. Our problem is that sometimes we don't really want God that much. We want other things more. Other things seem more enticing or, or more satisfying. And so if we're honest, sometimes we're not very hungry for God and for his presence in our lives. And it's much like a child. Most of you have little kids, which is like half the room or more. If, if your children, say you eat dinner like us around 6 p.m., if at 5 p.m. they're eating cookies and chips and drinking soda and they're eating candy, what's going to happen at 6 p.m. when their mom puts on the table this wonderful, healthy, nutritious dinner? They're not going to be hungry. They're not going to want that good food. They're already full. Their stomachs are full of junk, not nutritious, but nonetheless, their stomachs are already full. So they're not hungry for the good food. Same thing can happen to us spiritually. We can have our spiritual bellies so full of junk that there's no hunger for Jesus. I'm not hungry for him. We're full. What are you filling up with? What fills you? May you be hungry. May you be so starved for Jesus and his righteousness. But the only way that you're going to be hungry for Jesus is if you beg him to help you to say no to all the other junk that would otherwise fill your stomach. May we not settle for anything less than God himself to fill us. Then we have an insatiable hunger and thirst for the living water and the bread of life. You belong to Him. Remember this. Focus on this. The second truth is stop and focus daily on the truth that, number two, that you are desperate for God. Remember that, that you're desperate for Him. The Passover shows that you and I are desperate for God, that we deserve judgment. Why did the lamb had to die in our place? And the ultimate lamb of God is Jesus, who takes away the sin of all the world. And so that's what he did on the cross. He was our sacrifice. And so he's saying, okay, people, before you can go and go do things for me and be victorious and conquer the land, and in our case, have victory in our daily spiritual battles, he says, stop and focus on me. You need to stop and reflect on my grace. Remember the grace that I've given to you. So let me ask you one question to see how well this is really impacting your life. Do you realize how desperate you are? And it's how do I, how do you, treat other people? Honestly reflect on that. Don't answer it too quickly. How do you treat other people? Because if there's things in your heart like envy or impatience or Gossip, or lack of a desire to sacrifice and serve others, or anger, or unforgiveness, or greed, and the list can go on. If any of those things are in your heart, that's a sign that you don't recognize how desperate you are for God's grace. Because when we realize how desperate we are and how grateful we are for God's grace, then we're going to extend grace to others and so i was talking to my son this week who had some guys that have been kind of bugging him at at school it's kind of bothering him and i said you need to show them grace don't fight them don't 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 get angry at them and just show them grace and i talked to him yesterday we were were kind of having a meal together the two of us and saying how are you doing and he's like well i'm not getting angry on the outside anymore dad I was like, okay, I'm glad you're not yelling or getting angry anymore on the outside. I said, but what about on the inside? I'm still mad on the inside. I said, okay, son, you were here. We want to get there. You've journeyed, but you still have a ways to go. Because the goal is that you pray and ask God to help you not get angry on the inside either. Towards other people. So remember your need for grace you're desperate for God's grace. And when you remember that, you'll be not angry on the inside as much as on the outside. See, this only happens if your roots go deep in a devotional life. If you don't spend time honestly reading and meditating and thinking about God's word and in community. The whole point of circumcision is that you're part of the community of faith. While we emphasize in our church relationships, not programs. We emphasize in this church, be in a home group. We have community. Be in a discipleship group where you have accountability. If you don't have those things, you're not going to grow. Programs don't do that. Programs don't give you accountability. Relationships that are Christ-centered do. And so we need this. We need loving correction. I need love and correction. We all need it. Every day. Remember that you belong to God. Focus. In fact, you're desperate for His grace. And lastly, as we close, stop daily and focus on the truth that you are free to enjoy God. Now, when I say you are free to enjoy God, I mean that very literally. You are literally no longer a captive. You are no longer enslaved. You are liberated. You are free from the enslaving power of sin. You are free to run to God and to enjoy Him. Because the lamb, the Passover shows that the lamb paid the price. And it was the Passover that liberated them from their slavery in Egypt. And so what you're seeing with the lamb and the whole point of the Passover is that now they're free. They're liberated from slavery. They can go and enter into a covenant relationship with God. And so what we're seeing here, the principle for you and me, is that if you know Jesus... You have His Spirit. You now have the victory over the enslaving power of sin. And this is not the power of positive thinking. That's not what this is. I'm not saying focus on this because it's positive thinking. That's bunk. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit of God who indwells believers. And He's real. And He's active. And He will change your desires. If you would draw near to him and enjoy him, and what he does is he makes our hearts more like him, and he's holy. Your role is to trust him. Trust him. Enjoy him. And he'll give you the power to live victoriously. So when you feel that temptation coming, again, all of us do, you fight back with the gospel. a desire comes to enjoy something more than Jesus when the the desire comes to turn to something else for comfort other than Jesus, to act out in a way that you know is sinful and is going to hurt you, your soul, and others. What do you do? You fight back. You focus on the fact that Jesus is better, that Jesus is more satisfying. You say, Jesus, you're better. Jesus, you're enough for me. The riches of your love will always be enough, and we sing it, but we have to, Focus on this every day, especially when temptations come and the enemy is attacking. Say, so, Jesus, you're sufficient for me. And you pray. You, you, you don't give him. You beg God for help and for strength and say, Spirit, empower me. Deliver me from this temptation. And he will. Call a brother and tell him, tell him, hey, I'm struggling right now. Call a sister and tell her, you can do this because God is with you. Remember how you're going to feel after. That's so important. Remember after. It's easy to think, oh, it's going to feel so good. No, no, it won't. Remember after. It won't, it won't feel so good. Remember, it clouds God's presence, and it takes away your vitality to be victorious requires focusing on these truths. You know what our victory is here as we close? I'll just tell you this. Our, our victory is exposing the world for what it is not satisfied. That's what our victory is. So if you're here today and you found yourself still realizing, man, I really am ensnared. I really am enslaved to my sin. And I'm done. I want to be free. I want to live in the way that you're describing, Pastor. All you have to do today is repent of your sins, recognize that Jesus died for you, ask him to save you, put complete trust in him, and he'll save you. And the work of the Lamb will be applied to you. And you will have this joy that we're talking about this morning. And those of us that do know Jesus, may we resolve to follow our captain into victory. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the joy of reading your word and seeing how you desire to shape our lives through it. I pray that you would help us to not simply hear these truths, but to truly apply them Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look at it together. I pray for anyone in this room that right now who is doing business with you, who is far from you, Pray that you would reach out and you would save him or her. Help us be a church that truly pursues you, for you are enough for us. We praise you, for you are worthy. And we pray in the name of our love, Jesus.